welcome to the Protectors Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Piccolo. Hey, welcome back to the Protectors Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Piccolo. This episode, I welcome John Norris. John is a career LEO, just retired, and he spent decades in our national force fighting the cartel. Yes, the cartel in our backyard. Um, Unbelievable stories. Listen in. But John also has a book called Hidden War where it really documents it. So you're not going to get the whole story in our 25-35 minute podcast, but you will in his book. Now, John is very passionate about the California Wildlife Officers Foundation. Now, the California Wildlife Officers Foundation provides direct support to the officers on the line, either through providing canine support Night vision, you name it, they do it. Now, if you go to their website, they actually have coins there. And for all you LEOs or military or vet or whatever that, you know, buys um, challenge coins, check them out. Now, on behalf of the Protectors Podcast, I'm going to buy a couple coins because 100% of the proceeds goes back to the California Wildlife Officers Foundation. So listen in as John and I chat about his career and what he's doing now. Hey, John, welcome to the Protectors Podcast. How are you doing today? Real good, Jason. Thanks for having me on. Hey, where are you located now? Well, I'm officially a Montana resident since uh, retirement from phase one uh, since January, but still spent a lot of time in California, obviously, as my home state and where uh, my career was as a game warden and then developing the tactical unit. So kind of the best of both worlds, you know, get to be up here in, uh, in mountain country that I'm most comfortable in um, most of the time. But, uh, you know, with a book tour and, and speaking engagements related to the message with, uh, with the new project with Hidden War, um, I'm in California a lot and, and all over the country. So, um, but we, we call Montana home now. So good stuff. Yeah. 26 years, huh? That's a, that's a good yeah, was Actually 28. Yeah. It was, it was actually just, just at 28 when, uh, when I pulled the plug last December and, uh, you know, in, in that tenure had, had the opportunity and really it was a treat to do almost every job as a game warden that you could do, including some progressive stuff we'd never done, which was the whole end of a career that the new book goes into and and the special operations front stuff. So um, really an exciting journey. Now backtrack to like, how did you get into all of this? It kind of a funny backstory. Um, You know, to be a gay, you know, usually, when someone's going to be a game warden, they obviously grow up, you know, hunting, fishing, loving the outdoors, which I did. My dad, my grandfather, my uncles, they were all avid conservationists, like, you know, hardcore ethical legal hunters and anglers and proponents of protecting wildlife and keeping as much public land open, you know, for everybody to enjoy. So I actually passed hunter safety with my dad's help, went through my hunter safety class at nine years old, and I was hunting waterfowl with him right after that. Um, but unlike all my colleagues that I was in the Fish and Wildlife Police Academy with to start my game warden, I'd never been game warden before the academy. And um, I didn't even know what a game warden did until really not too long before the academy because I had never been checked by one. I'd been in the field hunting for years, fishing, you know, you name it. And I was just one of those guys that never met a game warden. So um, at the start of the whole process, I was actually kind of going in the wrong direction. Uh, I was, even though I was in the, in the wildlands all the time and, and loving those sports, I was actually going to be a civil engineering major. And I was in an impacted engineering program at San Jose State University in the Silicon Valley, where I'm originally from, and kind of tooling along in school, you know, and um, 
getting the grades, grinding out with all the math and science, all that crazy stuff for an engineering degree. But I wasn't really feeling it. You know, it, it just, it was going to be a very lucrative career and creative from the standpoint of drafting and design, but I just wasn't feeling it. And then um, I was on a five day backcountry hike in Henry Coast State Park, which is the second largest state park in California, really kind of my inspiration for what I later became in this career. And my, uh, my brother outlaw and I were with the pack horse and we were uh, dumb kids hiking in the rain in the middle of December when no one else is out in this crazy, you know, this is not, you know, backpacking weather at all or conditions, but we were the dumb kids out of school that like to do that stuff. And we were camped out on a lake with a, with a fire trying to dry out all our gear from, a, from getting soap the night before. And here comes a game warden driving down the hill in his green truck by himself in the middle of nowhere kind of creeping down on us and he thought we were you know he thought we were poaching he thought we were out there poaching deer in the off season because this park had really good black-tailed deer genetics it was notorious for guys trying to poach big big bucks out of season but we were we weren't that of course we were just dumb kids without the right gear getting soaked so um when he found out we were uh, doing what we're doing he wanted to leave and I, I kept him there for two hours and i was like wait what do you do exactly you're not a park ranger but you're you're a game warden and then as I talked to this guy for a couple hours, Jason, a light bulb just blew up, you know, and I, I just got excited and then realized that is a job for me, man. This guy's like in his truck by himself living out. That's his, that's his office. And he's out there in the back country behind lock gates in the middle of nowhere, gorgeous country. And he's out there just protecting wildlife being kind of a, you know, like the lone ranger on his horse, you know, steel horse he rides instead. And I was just blown away. And so that whole hike, I talked to my my brother outlaw, one of my best friends on that hike, uh, Jeff, and he knew something had changed in me. So as soon as we got out of the woods, I uh, I went to the advisor's office for criminal justice at San Jose State and changed my major immediately. And when I started the, uh, the spring semester, a couple weeks later, I was going for a criminal justice degree to, to really be a game warden if, if I got lucky enough to get hired. Yeah, I think uh, you and I had some kind of a similar story because – I was a border patrol agent. I'm out in the middle of uh, the, what was it, Tahota Odom Indian Reservation right next to Oregon Pipe. Yeah. And uh, a ranger pulled up and he had, um, and you know, it's a little bit different game warden ranger, but just, you know, the solo, you know, lone ranger here, he comes out of nowhere in a big old pickup truck. The back is filled up with weed and he's got one in custody. <laughs> nice. He's got an <laughs> and a shotgun. He's by himself. And I'm like, oh man. Like that's the life right there, you know. He's got these this whole park, and it's just his. So yeah, it's just just cool stuff. And and you know, it's interesting. I didn't have any exposure to that like you did, and it's cool to see how similar our stories are. But you as a border patrol agent, me as a game warden, him as a say a national park or you know maybe an LEO with Forest Service as a ranger, we're all part of that very thin green line, you know. And um, as you know, we're just so underrepresented in numbers to do all the jobs we're asked to do to protect this country, protect our wildlife, watch the borders. And, um, you know, I, I can't, my gratitude is in fellow thin green liners. That's, that's my big message right now is, um, and it's come out a lot with the second book because between the first book and the second book, they're exactly a decade apart. And we look at the population growth in one of the appendices sections in my book, uh, hidden war on, how much the population has increased in all of our states in the nation, how much more use we're having to our wildlands and back countries and border areas and, you know, stuff you're very familiar with, of course. 
And then the number of like game wardens have gone up like under a thousand, <laughs> you know, in a decade. So we're getting less protection out there with more impacts. I know you guys, you know, on the border patrol front, I followed that. I have a lot of buddies in border patrol and uh, a lot of park ranger buddies as well. And you got, we're kind of in the same situation. You know, we don't grow a whole lot yet. The impacts to what we're out there to protect for the nation's benefit public safety and wildlands, waterways and wildlife protection are just getting more and more impacted. So um, kudos to what you do and have done. And uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a cool journey to be part of that thin green line and, and kind of be out there as the, the Lone Ranger sometimes, you know? Yeah, it's cool, but then it's also dangerous as well. I mean, you can't, you Very can't much, yeah. I, I know you don't discount that at all. That's one of your big, the big talking points of your book. But you know, one of the reasons I kind of looked at you and I wanted to get you on the show was, you know, even back in the 90s when I was in college, you know, during the summers, I do that counter drug program and you'd and we'd do the, we'd cut down a weed for the DEA and everybody else. And then you started yeah. writing in your book about the these cartel grows out in the middle of the out in the middle of the um, what do you call the mountains? And they're huge. I mean, these aren't just like, you know, mom and pops have a couple buckets of water and they're they're uh, fertilizing their weed and yeah. a few plants. These are like really complex operations with booby traps and with armed guards, you know, raking in a million, millions of dollars worth of uh, product. So were yeah, you, were, it was crazy. It, yeah. Go ahead. Very good. I was going to ask if you were, just saying, you were one of the spearheads in that. Well, I know for Ari, so yeah, I was one of the guys on the front lines with, with some, some brothers that were also doing it in other parts of the state. Um, and all those guys later ended up being part of the team we built. And I was able to pick them to, you know, do a trial run for this marijuana enforcement team and kind of break tradition. But I'll, I'll go into that, but I'll back up a little bit simply by saying, why did we get to the point where we had to build, you know, a specialized tactical unit of game wardens that just did this type of work to get these trespass grows mostly run by the cartels, and, you know, why do we have apprehension dogs trained to the level they are? Why do we have a sniper unit? You know, why do we train for, you know, every kind of contingency, like, like a domestic SWAT team as game wardens? And the reason was just what you said, brother, in the beginning was these grow sites aren't your mom and pop grow sites. They are run by drug trafficking organizations out of Mexico <clears throat> that are very efficient, very skilled, and very deliberate in what they do. And you're right. I mean, you got everything from anti-personnel booby traps to protect these grows from the public, from law enforcement, from anyone that stumbles into them. Everything from noisemakers, tripwires, animal snares. But I mean, even Vietnam era punji pits, uh, as you know from from uh, Hidden War in that book, we have a color section in that book of photos that are edited really nice. The publisher did a great job, as well as a ton of black and white pictures in there because we really needed to make visual references to what we were talking about throughout all those crazy stories and to see a Vietnam era punji pit in a national park in Northern California on a trail that the public recreate on, not even near the growth site yet, but simply to take out, hinder anyone getting near that multi-million dollar black market, you know, um, cash crop that really woke us up. And that was 2015 when we found our first one and had it not been for our wonder canine Phoebe to Protecting that before our point man walked right into it and went through that tarp that was kind of hiding it. It, was, it looked like the ground. And under that tarp and leaf litter, brother, was sharpened sticks, 18 inches under the ground, pointed straight up, Vietnam style. And just like the Viet Cong used to do to take out our soldiers, they would take those sharpened sticks of bamboo, but they'd also put human excrement on it to get the bacteria and infection potential from any cut they would get, you know, 
to one of us. And what these guys are doing is they're actually putting the banned toxics, the insecticide, pesticide that's so deadly it was banned by the EPA 20 years ago. Can't even have it in this country. It's a felony. And they smear that stuff on the sticks before and during while they're putting it on the plants. They're putting it in the water. They're trying to keep everything off that, you know, that really, really lucrative uh, bud and, and, and from the marijuana flower they're producing. And when we started seeing that, and we, we ended up seeing about seven or eight of those before I retired, and the guys are still running into that, you know, um, as they continue to do great work. That's crazy. I mean, that's that's in America. We have, you know, kind of these eco-terrorist cartel growers running around, and obviously not a whole lot of concern for health and human safety or, you know, just, just anything organic or pure when they're putting that, those same poisons on the marijuana they're selling illegally, but also trying to take out our public and, and our law enforcement guys. So that's why we ended up having to form this team that the book's all about, um, you know, from our first gunfight in 2005 in the foothills of Gold Silicon Valley, where my partner Warden was shot near fatally with an AK-47, but survived that luckily. That was, that was the turning point for me, man, that really made my career go in a completely different direction because of that day I realized this is not your typical wildlife criminal poacher that most game wardens are going to go up against or rangers are going to go up against. This is a deliberate, well-trained, organized group from outside of our borders here illegally. And these aren't, you know, these aren't immigrants trying to live the American dream and trying to make a, make a living. I mean, these are deportable felons, man, with some of them on international watch lists for heinous crimes from out of country, but very good at growing or very good at being gunmen, good at, you know, processing, harvesting, distributing um, not only this black market cannabis, but also methamphetamine that they produce you know, here in America and distributed throughout fentanyl, um, human trafficking, gun running. I mean, it's not just poison cannabis or, or, or toxically tainted cannabis for, for a better phrase. I mean, it's a little bit of everything going on within borders. So that, that's why we built the team we did um, to do the job safely and really get to the environmental crimes these guys are doing and just wrecking our wildlife. Yeah, it's almost like gone are those days when you could be like a lone ranger out there or just like, you know, a six shot 357. I mean, now you right. have to be out there completely armed like you and you you built out a sniper unit. I mean, you really need these things. Yeah. Yeah. We weren't out there just, um, you know, trying, trying to go the extra level cause we all enjoyed it. And, you know, I was fortunate to get kind of, you, know, you know, the right guys for the job. And, um, and, and I go over that throughout the book of when you build a team like this, that historically you haven't had in a conservation agency, you know, and you're really going, you're looking at military tactics, having a retired uh, SEAL team veteran and a good friend on the team, a 20 year veteran of the SEAL teams, and a lot of us having SWAT and or, tactical backgrounds with other agencies and, and the and or military experience, those were the kind of guys we needed on this team because this was going to be a functioning unit as a whole. As you know, you just said it best, you can't go do this alone. You can't be the, you know, the one guy in the truck out there 30 miles behind a lot gate by yourself and, and expect to, to do any of this stuff safely. So we, uh, we picked the right guys um, and something, and you know this from from being in the job of, of law enforcement. I mean, it doesn't matter how good your skill sets are, or, you know, what type of uh, you know um, accomplishments you've had in your in your career. It's really about the team as a whole to be safe and be effective. And and I was very blessed to to work with and pick and have as my family members now, even after I've retired, the most humble, selfless guys that are that are the best tacticians in the agency, and that's why they're on the team. So um, everybody puts the team first. No one's out there to showboat. 
Um, everybody's just highly proficient at what they do. And the dedication level, man, is, and you know this from working with your teams, it, it just makes or breaks the success. You know, um, I think, I think Michael Jordan said it best that um, talent wins games, but teamwork wins championships. And I kind of look at the uh, Bill Belichick model, how he coaches the you know New England Patriots. When I look at how we built Matt and I thought, you know what, I'm going to have, I may not have the best guy in this, this one particular area, but he's, he, this guy has great skill sets and he's selfless and he's a hard worker. And he's about the team is where he derives his ego satisfaction. Like all of us should. And man, I'm just blessed to get those, the, the right brothers and two amazing canines, one, one national historical canine that we can certainly talk about canine Phoebe that we lost last year, uh, 13 years old with leukemia. But that was the building blocks of starting something that could be successful was starting with the right people and then um, building it up, training together, not having district boundaries, being able to talk to and work with other states, military units, um, the counter drug guys from Moffett Field, you know, um, the 129th uh, Aero Squad out there out of Moffett, Team Hawk, um, uh, all those guys, as, as well as working with guys from Border Patrol from, from your old alma mater, uh, Force Service, BLM, DEA, sometimes FBI, numerous county agencies on the sheriff's level, um, federal agencies uh, and state. It was it was a really good direction we needed to go to be effective because one thing we noticed when I walked into that first gunfight, my partner was almost killed in 2005, and we uh, were kind of, you know, in our admin leave phase, going through the shooting investigation and, and kind of getting our worlds rocked because it was the first time any of us had been involved in any of that. Um, what started to resonate with me after the shock of the gunfight and the aftermath of that was that absolute devastation to the environment up there. Um, I hadn't been exposed to these banned toxics, carbofuran, metaphos, all these different nerve agents that they're bringing up from Tijuana, you know, and putting it all over the plants. I, I wasn't, a, I just wasn't aware of the devastation these products do. And I was seeing it firsthand in that grow site for the first time, like waterways completely destroyed for miles. All the fish are dead, you know, just because of a couple tablespoons of this stuff getting into the waterway. Um, I didn't know the cannabis that these guys produce. And, and that day it was a, an 11,000 plant grove. So like you said before, this wasn't mom and pops. This thing was massive. It was harvest time, August 5th, 2005. So there were armed gunmen there to defend the harvest and make sure it made it out of the woods safely. And we walked into an ambush. And um, But after we saw what was going on, the water diversions, the, all the camp trash, the human excrement in creeks, their, their camps that just build up with trash over six months because they're living out there for half the year, if not more at a time. The light bulb kind of went off with me and said, man, this is, I, I haven't seen anything this destructive yet in my career of doing most everything else, in, you know, as a game ward in California. Well, um, you know, you know we, need, we need to focus on it. It's quite literally like your book's title, a hidden war. Nobody knows what's going on out there. You know, we, we have our seven minute news flashes here and there about different things going on in the world, but nobody knows that this is in our backyard. Now, what if you were yeah. just a hiker, you're in your family out there, and all of a sudden you get these toe poppers? Because that's the other thing, the shotgun shells and buried in the ground with the, uh, with the nails, the fecal uh, punji sticks, everything, man. It really is a war in our backyard. It is, and we, we don't, you know, we're not trying to belabor that point, and, and, you know, we're definitely not exaggerating when we say, that that's what it is. It is kind of a hidden war that doesn't get a lot of attention. You might get a raid highlighted on local news. Um, we did as much outreach, Jason, as we could 
when this team and even before this team started, because my first book, War in the Woods, came out in 2010. And ironically, well, just this was bizarre to me that nobody had written about the drug trafficking groups out of Mexico and how they're do, you know, growing cannabis, not only south of the border and smuggling it across the border to distribute throughout America, but also producing it, you know, not only on the West Coast in, you know, the biggest weed state in the nation like California, but in 25 other states. No, none of us knew that, you know, and um, as we started to ramp up, no one had written about it on, on a, in a book forum. There, there weren't really big magazine articles on it at the time. And then to write it from a game warden's perspective and not a DE agent, you know, you just don't think of game wardens being involved in cannabis enforcement. Um, even when we had that first shootout, when my partner was shot in 2005, the, bit, the first thing that came down from the governor's office was, what the heck are game wardens doing on a drug raid? Yeah, exactly. That's a DEA job for the sheriffs. Why were game wardens with them? And so, one, we, we kind of had to justify why we were there. And we also had to start to turn the attention on the fact that game wardens aren't there just to help the sheriff's office. Game wardens need to co-lead these missions, if not lead them themselves. Because ultimately, we are sworn to protect the resources of the state and the nation. We're federally deputized as well under the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And if that's the biggest environmental crime destroyer that's killing our waterways, our wildlife, and our wild lands, then we're mandated to do those jobs. We were just ill-equipped to do it properly without the tactical training, the equipment, the administrative support, the air support, the trauma medicine. It needed to be handled at the highest level of tactical ability with, with the infrastructure to support it. And um, it took until 2013 when Chief Mike Carrion believed in me and, and the guys putting this team together to say, you know what, I'm going to let you guys do it. It's, it's, it's going to be, it's going to get, you know, mixed reviews because this is pretty radical for a fish and game agency to do, but I agree we need it. At that time we had been involved in uh, four or five gunfights since the 2005 incident. Fortunately, none of us had been hurt in those subsequent officer involved shootings, but we saw the need to have that team together. We also had to saw the need to have all our dogs involved where we weren't just piecemealing throughout the state. We were moving as one tactical element with our best canines because canines were getting us out of having more gunfights at an exponential level once we started working with good dogs and honing those tactics. So, you know, from that standpoint, there was just, there was just no better way to go, but we needed to focus on it and, and, and look at it environmentally as a mandate. Well, that's the thing. I'm glad you bring up canines because canines are like, I'm glad they are finally getting the attention they obviously need from everywhere. I mean, right? they're, they're so <laughs> critical for everything. And, you know, people yeah. don't realize what goes into like a canine, the training, um, not all of them are going to make it. I mean, it's just, it's really, it's uh, much needed, much needed. And they save lives every, everywhere. Yeah, they absolutely do, brother. They absolutely do. And and we didn't even really have a formalized, um, what I consider, you know, um, an effective and progressive canine program till about 2007, 2008. And that's when, when, you know, our handler, Brian Boyd, got one of our first dual purpose dogs that could both apprehension bite. And she was also a great detection dog. And that was canine Phoebe. And then we had other, you know, dual purpose dogs coming into the, to the agency, um, detection dogs, you know, mostly yellow labs, black labs, the Labrador retriever mix that, you know, they're not going to bite suspects, but they're so good at tracking. They're so good at detection. Um, my canine companion dog came up through obedience and she certified to ride with me when I was doing patrol, even before we started to do the special ops mental law enforcement stuff. 
And so Canine Apollo, you know, she just recently retired with me, but she smelled and found grows on routine scouts when we started to do that that work with the sheriff's office in Santa Clara County there in Silicon Valley. And uh, even at the lowest level, canine certification, she was doing good work and keeping us out of danger. So uh, definitely essential. Um, I know when we first started this and we were not a formalized team statewide and we were just integrating with other agencies, and War in the Woods, Jason, really goes, the first book goes into all of this, all the different missions I was doing with Santa Clara County Marijuana Eradication Team. They were the first agency to bring us in as game wardens as equals. We worked really well together. They considered us, you know, equal partners on helping hone tactics and how you apprehend these guys, how you sneak up and stalk them, you know, all those hunting skills we have as game wardens to get close. Because without dogs to catch these guys, you've got to be pretty savvy and your field craft has to be tight because they're really good in the woods. They live there. They have escape trails. They know at every sound, every corner, you know, how things should look, feel and sound. And getting in close enough to actually get them captured without dogs is super tough. But we were doing it, and we were doing it effectively um, because because we were taking seriously to be partners. And that that's eventually what when we when we brought in the dogs, and um, I got to get two of the finest dogs you know we had in the state on the marijuana enforcement team with the pilot program in 2013. Then we just started we just started you know really really getting effective. Very few people got away. Um, they never got to guns before it was too late as they're pulling a gun and, and it was, it's, you know, another gunfight's going to ensue and someone's going to get hurt or killed. You know, Phoebe was already on the bite and keeping this guy from getting his gun out fast enough. And then we're on top of him, and we're getting an in custody arrest. And, you know, when dogs aren't only saving the operator's lives, but they're actually saving the grower's life that just pulled a gun and, you know, justified deadly force because he wants to go to guns and fight, fight it out to the death. And now he's actually going to survive. He's going to be tore up pretty good. He's going to be hurting from that bite, but he just survived. And, and no one, we didn't get in a gunfight. And ultimately that was our goal every mission. So by the time uh, Phoebe retired and she is, is an example, um, canine Phoebe retired officially um, kind of around the early part of 2017. And we had a new, we had a new dog to replace her that was much younger, a male. And, and Brian was working with this dog, and he was working really well. But Phoebe retired with 116 apprehension bites in her career on armed cartel gunmen and grow sites, and which is a, a ridiculous number for for any dual purpose canine, whether it's a military SEAL team war dog. When I talked to my buddies that on that is, side of the fence, when you said 116, I was like, wow. Yeah, yeah, it was. It's it's just ridiculous. And and then on top of the 116 bites she had, she had 900 bad guy arrests in her career where she got embayed and they gave up and she didn't have to bite. Now where do you hear numbers like that? And, and outside of the numbers, which is fantastic, it's phenomenal. But every one of those guys that either gave up or that she had to bite were the worst of the worst from the standpoint of a public safety threat because they were so dangerous. And 90 plus percent of those guys were cartel embedded operatives here illegally, not here legally whatsoever and embedded inside the country. So the amount of lives she saved by getting those guys out of circulation, not only saving our lives, and then what she did to stop that enterprise's effectiveness for the profits, you know, one of these growth sites, five to 10,000 plants is at least a five to $7 million black market ordeal. Well, that's the one bigger thing, goes. That's one thing I wanted to touch on too, is like the cartel is not going to send their lowest common denominator up there to guard this and to, to have a, a huge production like that. They're going to send some more all. guys and girls. And I always say yeah. girls because sometimes yeah. you never know where you're going to run into. 
right? And we, we've seen some we've seen some uh, some women, you know, working within the grows over the years. Not a lot, but but we do see signs of that. And so when you uh, when you have a dog like that that loves to go to work and loves to protect her teammates and um, and the funny part about this one canine Phoebe Jason is when she's off duty, she is as social and playful and goofy as my yellow lab, you know, her and Apollo are buddies and she's on her back getting belly scratches and playing with the Kong ball and the tennis ball and, you know, keeping her drive up. But this was the kind of dog that could bite like a war dog when she needed to. I, I call it the Goldilocks principle, not too hard, not too soft, but she would just write. Just I love right. it, man. I love it. Just enough bite pressure, you know, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the analogy we can all relate to. And she was, uh, but she would always get him down, but she never been an officer. She never got confused on a mission with, you know, all of us on the team, plus 20 other guys from different agencies, all mixed, all painted up, all camoed out, all wearing kits that look similar and, and rifle systems and whatnot. And she never made mistakes. And when she did get confused, she oriented very quickly um, and always knew who the good guys were that were part of her family that she needed to protect and who the bad guys were that were trying to do harm to us. So, um, she was just an amazing, amazing dog. And we have a lot of other good dogs and I'm not negating anything they've done, but you know, that was one of those handler canine combinations. that is like a one in a million and it's interesting. And I don't know if uh, a podcast you might be interested in, but a fellow warrior on the SEAL team side, Mike Ritland, I was just on his mic drop podcast. Mike about drop. A month ago yeah. I was on there. Uh, yeah. What was that on there? January or February? Yeah. He's awesome. Mike is For you? consummate warrior. I yeah. love him. Yeah, just just a great but it's so cool. I, I didn't know you were on his, his show, so even even another another similar you got. Um, but I just finished doing a, a four hour podcast with him about three weeks ago, and when I told him the numbers and what Phoebe was about, he went what? Exactly. <laughs> you know? He went. She did that. What? what? She goes. You know, and all the war dogs he trains and all the SEAL teams he supports with, with his amazing canine facility and his skills. Um, he wasn't aware of the hidden war either. And he, nah, he got and so enraged he, being such a patriot. He's like, yeah. I got to get involved in this, man. I jump in a national fight right now. <laughs> well, he, check this out. I mean, that's the thing about these podcasts. You know, when you and I were talking a bit before we jumped on, you know, how people are like, well, you know, I'm going to do a podcast. I'm like, you know what? It's good because then you build a network of like-minded people and we all learn yeah. off everybody else. I'm like, I didn't know these numbers either. And like I was saying before, like in the summer of like, I think it was like, uh, so I got out of the army in 96 and I went to college after the army, but every summer I do this Minnesota counter drug program with the DEA and everybody, you know, as a guard member, a national guard member. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you know, you, you know, I went through that training where they're like, oh, here's a toe poppers, here's a punji sticks. And that was back then, man. And then they were showing us the, uh, you know, the black and white and the, uh, the color video of where these grows are throughout the country. And then you see California and it's just such a perfect yeah. storm to grow weed. And that's like one thing I was reading about your book was like, it really is, you know, you have the, um, you know, hydration for the weed. Um, it's just and a great product. I mean, it's, it's perfect for the cartels because they have an easy access. These same smuggling corridors are going to bring them straight up into the U S and then, yeah. you know, they yeah. work and they move back and back and forth, back and forth. Yeah, man. It's, uh, yeah, it's uh, I didn't, when you should, when these numbers are up here, let me write this real quick. This is from your book from the intro. Yeah. 
In 2016, illegal sales of marijuana in the U.S. were estimated at $46.6 billion. And black crazy, huh? illegal sales, 87% of all the weed sales. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, wheat sales are yeah. only 7.5. <laughs> I mean, I know, man. And it's, it's, yeah. And we're not talking like, you know, commercial grows here. We're talking like these illegal grows. And like you said about the pesticides and everything else we're using, they, they don't care what they do to the environment. They don't care what they do to anybody that encounters them. It is a visit, a, a business and illicit business, man. So. Yeah, and you just hit it on the head, brothers. The, the profit margin is what keeps them going. I mean, there's so much money in it. There's such a demand for black market weed nationally right now, regardless of where we regulate it. Like, you know, California just regulated um, the last couple of years. I was uh, I was there still working. And, you know, it still has its problems with the black market within the quasi-legitimate community. But it didn't stop this cartel threat whatsoever, um, largely because, like you said, um, you know, the, the hub of it's in California being one of only six true Mediterranean climates on the globe. California is like, well, just like the wine state, right? The Napa Valley. I mean, we grow great wine grapes in California because we're a Mediterranean climate. Of course, we grow great weed too. So, and uh, you're <laughs> right, it's right there by the border. It's, it, it, it's a hot jump, but there are 25 to 27 other states that it's still going on by these same groups. And you were noticing that even being over on the East Coast. Um, and when you when you look at, the money involved and you look at even states that are regulating um, you're still seeing a big demand for this black market stuff. that's so illicit, very potent, albeit toxically tainted as we know from the banned poisons, which our consumers don't know. And, and that's the horrible part about it. You know, they're getting this stuff fairly cheap. It's really potent. Um, you know, but it's, it's being used by people that have no idea they're ingesting, you know, elements of, a nerve agent that the Nazis developed back in World War II for their war efforts. I mean, exactly. uh, you know, insecticide and rodenticides that are so crazy. And and uh, this stuff isn't being washed off before it's being sold. And um, users have no idea what they're ingesting. And, and they have no idea that they're being complicit in a black market enterprise, you know, within borders of America. And I think that kids experimenting, medical patients, adult recreationalists, anybody that's consuming cannabis, the last thing we want to do is see anybody hurt from that. And I'm sure they wouldn't want to be complicit in, in fueling that black market fire from these cartel groups if they were aware. And like you said, just so many people aren't aware. And that's really what my goal is now is not only to represent guys like you, guys like me, guys like Rangers, that thin green line, but to really educate as much as I can out there. And, you know, now that, you know, we're both not, you know, not with the agency anymore, we can speak a little more freely. I certainly with the second book am able to talk nationally and, and I'm all over the country doing it. You know, one, first of all, first and foremost is to protect our public. Secondly, to inform our public. And I think the third thing, and I noticed this in, in getting to know you and, and getting to know Mike with Mike Drop and going to be on Joe Rogan's show here in a couple of weeks and did Stephen Ranella's Meat Eater recently. We're all from different factions and have a little bit different take on it. Um, but we're, we all want to unify, you know. And uh, yeah, I look at this issue, you know, yeah. No, man, it's it's all about that. It's about spreading the word. Like I didn't, you know, I kind of put this in a back burner. You know, I'm like, ah, I cut down some weed and in college. You know, I, I did the narco <laughs> game. I was a customs special agent back in San Diego, customs and ice doing hide for years. And uh, yeah, you know, with a tractor trailer full of weed coming across, I keep I kept forgetting about everything going on within our borders when it comes to like you know the marijuana yeah. grows and they're getting those THC, THC levels up, man. And that's why they're selling such 
you know, this isn't ditchweed yeah. anymore. This is this is potent nope. stuff. Yeah, granted, yeah you're gonna get cancer. From, I was gonna say, granted, you're gonna get cancer from all the crap they're putting in it, but nobody knows that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I was in the, you know, getting back to what you just said, I was in the same boat because I started down in Riverside County in '92, right out of the academy, and I was there from '92 to '95 literally on the San Diego County border with Mexico a lot of times and starting to work with border, meet my first morning on the job, meeting your guys and working hand in hand on border interdiction stuff, everything from illegal, you know, immigration and, you know, trying to curtail that running up through Riverside County, but also getting those loads from across the border and had no idea it was starting up. And that was the start of it for California and Oregon and Washington and pushing East of these, of these cartel guys realizing, Hey, if we can grow in within border, we just took out that whole border issue or interdiction. We at least limited it, you know? So, uh, they got smart and they double dipped. And, uh, that was the start of it when you and I were, uh, were starting our careers down there. Yeah. And the cartel, we know that they will do anything to make a buck, you know, anything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it just, and you know, I try to tell people, I'm like you and I, you know, I'm going on 20 years on a job, you know, you 28 years for you. And we move on. We do different things. Uh, that is their life, man. You know, they're grown into yep. it. They're born into it. They're trained into it. And they're going to do it until either they die or, or they or they uh, pass on their uh, their expertise to someone else, man. I, you know. Yeah, and it's, it's not, it, it's not a, you know, like you're saying there, it's not a judgment on any culture, any person or any mindset or, or individual. I, I, I'm not that way, but one thing that I did in Hidmore that I didn't wasn't even able to do in the first book because we just didn't know is look at the mindset of these groups that are doing this in America. You know, I, I get into some of the patron saint stuff that, you know, you've seen down on the border. I'm sure that we've all started to get trained up in on the law enforcement and military side, especially the last decade. And I dedicated, you know, a portion of that book in one chapter to, understanding that, you know, there's some patron saints these guys worship that actually bless them for doing their illegal trafficking as their legitimate, you know, operation because they're blessed to do that. And we're the bad guys, right? Like, like, well, yeah, I'm you know, glad you brought the patron saint. Yeah. I'm, I'm so, glad you bring that up because stuff. that's, it's, you know, we, you kind of grow up in a vanilla world when you grow up in the United States, not to, not to discount anybody where they've grown up or anything. But we have exactly. a different, I don't know what it is, a different mindset, different moral compass. And you see these these totems everywhere in the drug world, everywhere. Right. You know, there's there's right. ones for smugglers. There's ones for, you know, the uh, migrants coming across. It's everywhere, man. And it's just, it, it gives them their power, you know. It's just, yeah. it's a different world. And that's why I'm glad you wrote this book, man. Because you need, we yeah, need was, more uh, message out there. Yeah, and if, if nothing else to, you know, besides educating our public and, and really trying to get people aware of what's out there for their own safety, uh, but for guys like you and me on the job and, and other warriors in that mindset that are doing the job still, if they run across, um, you know, like a load vehicle or, you know, a distribution or a drop vehicle or anything like that, or they're working grows or they're working, you know, the white dope side of what these same groups do. Um, those telltale signs of seeing those patron saint totems, the stickers, you know, the, the, the jewelry, the belt buckles, all those different things, just to know what they're walking into. Because, uh, you know, just kind of like uh, some of the extreme terrorist groups we've dealt with, you know, here in America, how they view us and how willing to be violent they are because they feel sanctioned 
by their deity to do so because they're blessed and, and, and we're the enemy. You know, we don't want our guys getting hurt over that. And obviously we've had, a, we've seen a lot of violence and before we understood that mindset and this patron saint thing and, and where their frame of reference is. So um, that, that was another thing we wanted to make sure to include in hidden war is so the public knows this, but all our, all our law enforcement and military brothers and sisters out there know what to deal with, you know, from the mindset of, uh, of this, this conflict. Well, when does a TV series come out? <laughs> That's what you need next, man. Uh, yeah, yeah. The Hidden War um, what, I, what I can say is there's some discussions on that. There's been some interest in it, and we're uh, – as much as I can talk about it right now. But That's that good, that could, that you, you could see that, and, and done correctly, it could be very, very educational. We had done – I don't know if you remember this, but when my first book came out in 2010, we had just filmed – almost three full seasons of um, the first game one reality show on National Geographic channel called Wild Justice. And yeah, was that, that was good. one of those crap shoots. Yeah. You know, that was one of those crap shoots that my chief Nancy Foley took a, a good gamble on and uh, committed to our agency doing it. And even though there was a lot of challenges and difficult to work with camera crews and the safety and liability issue, it finally exposed what game wardens do besides just checking fishing licenses, you know, cause that's what everybody thought we did. Oh yeah. You know, you're kind of smoky the bear guy and you check the fishing license and wear the cowboy hat and all that. And you know, we do that, but it's like one little smidgen of everything we have to do that we're mandated to do. Right. So that kind of put game ones on the forefront of being real diverse. And I was just starting to work in this marijuana, uh, you know, eradication stuff with the sheriff's office, but we we're doing a lot of high speed tactical stuff that we were getting on camera and people were blown away. They were like, what, <laughs> what is this about? And, you know? And then, um, fortunately some other good game warden shows sprung up from that, like Northwoods law, my buddy, Chris McCabe, a main warden over there was one of the leads on that show. And it went to New Hampshire, one in Texas, one in Montana. So finally we got that thin green line out in the limelight a little bit to show what we do and, and recruit and retain more people for one of these lower paying law enforcement jobs, you know? <laughs> um, but, but that started to educate people, which was cool. And, um, to keep that going on a grander scale because it's, we have very short minds in, in America. You know, we forget stuff quick. Oh, I know. And so now, right. And now hidden more people are looking at the title and when we launched an NRA annual with Ollie North endorsing it and really, you know, really making sure we were at the NRA annual um, meetings in uh, Indianapolis in April, people are buying books and they're like, Hey, LT, this is crazy. I had no idea this was going on in America. I go, yeah, imagine that a lot of people don't. <laughs> and, um, but that was the point. So yeah, if we, if we, if we can do something on TV and do it right, then it'll, it'll help get that message out and really, you know, just highlight what you do, what I do, what Mike Ritland and our SEAL teams are doing. Cause whether you're fighting the, whether you're, you know, you're, you're, you're fighting for safety overseas on a military front, or you're doing it within border on the domestic law enforcement front, we're all trying to do it for public safety and just to keep this great country safe. Cause we are so blessed to have what we have. Um, but it doesn't come easy, you know? And, uh, and we, and we need to keep that in mind as we, as we move on. Well, the book is hidden war, how special operations game wardens are reclaiming America's wildlands from the drug cartels. Now I noticed you have it everywhere. Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, we got it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, right now it's blown up on Amazon because we've gotten some great exposure and I appreciate um, getting to know you, Jason, and having the time to talk on your show about it. Um, because again, it just networks the message if people do want books. Um, there's a Kindle version as well. And next week, I'm going to actually be in a studio with a music and audiobook producer to not only read for the book, but help compose some, some good music for it 
on the audio on oh, the, really uh, cool. the audio medium. Yeah, and people have been asking for that, every, you know, with the first book, but it's one of those things. I mean, we listen to podcasts now when we drive, and we want to listen to our book. Yep. And so, you know, and I, I got a lot of demand on that. The publishers are really excited about it. So we're going to be doing that next week, and that audio book, but it won't be out till the end of the year, you know, for the holidays. But right now, you can get it on Amazon. You can also reach out to me directly on Instagram. And my Instagram handle is really easy. It's just John Norris, one word, J-O-H-N-N-O-R-E-S. My website is Trailblazer413, Trailblazer with a Z, 413, at yahoo.com. And my website is just johnnorris.com. But if you hit me up on Instagram or an email and anybody wants a personalized copy, I'll dialogue with that individual directly. We'll work out payment and I'll ship them, you know, in real time. And I've been doing that for weeks now, actually for months since the book came out. If uh, I'm not going to be able to see people in person, if they want a personalized copy, if people's interested. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to link to everything uh, into the comments and um, everything else when it comes to the podcast. So that'd be awesome. The other thing I've been starting awesome, to do. Thank you. Oh, no problem at all. I started doing this about four or five episodes ago. Is there anything you like a, uh, something you want to plug, you know, like a nonprofit, anything you support. And then I'll throw a shout out in the beginning of the podcast as well. Yeah, there's a, a couple things. First and foremost, um, I got to give a shout out to, well, my brothers I met, you know, back home, the marijuana enforcement team and, and all the guys doing the job. Um, all of them are still there. Then when, when we started the team in 2013 and uh, love what you guys are doing, um, blessed to work with you and know you guys and the public and your listeners, you know, I think would really appreciate all the hard work they're doing out there. We also have a foundation. It's called the California Wildlife Officers Foundation. And this is one of our retired chiefs, Nancy Foley, some other generous donors in business and conservation put up funds to generate a foundation to support wildlife officer needs because we're always, we're always budget poor. You know, it's just the way our agency works. And this game, as far as marijuana enforcement and the tactical unit and the canine demands are very costly. So, you know, they buy dogs, they buy equipment for dogs. Heaven forbid we lose a dog from a cartel attack, which has happened to other agencies, and we have to deal with those contingencies. So, so KWAF has just done a great job of filling in the blanks. They help get, you know, high-end night vision gear we needed when, when I formed that and when we built the sniper unit. And if it wasn't for that organization out there, we could not have gotten that advanced tactically that quickly. Um, it just would not have happened. So definitely want to give them a shout out and uh, and tell them thanks. And uh, they're a little group, but they're doing a lot. So it's good stuff. That's awesome. Thanks for bringing that up. Because that's one thing I really like doing is pushing on like, hey, if even one listener or two listeners donates a little bit or just shines light on that organization for someone else to support it, it's perfect. Yeah, well, appreciate John, that. Good stuff. Unlike Mike Ritland, who could record for four hours or five hours or 10, Mike's <laughs> awesome. And he just pulls it out of you, man. I'm telling you. Uh, it's probably one yeah. of the only podcasts I almost cried in. I was like, he had an Oprah minute with me. I was like, oh, man, what are you doing to me, Mike? But hey, I really appreciate yeah. you coming on. Hey, glad to be here, man. And um, we can uh, we can talk another time as well, and I'll stay in touch with you. And anything you need on this end, I certainly got your back. And I really appreciate the time to talk today, Jason, get to know you and share some good information. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks a lot, brother.